Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast designed to raise awareness of mental health, the work that professionals do within the mental health sector and also to tackle the stigma around mental health. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia McLean who is a Senior Commissioning Manager across Hampshire and the Isle of Wight for Mental Health Crisis Care. Hi Sonia. Hi Stephen. So first of all for the listeners would you be able to give a bit of background about yourself and also the definition of the role of a CCG? Yeah absolutely so I um, um, have worked in the NHS now for 20 years and um, have a vast amount of experience with regards to working across um, a provider organisation as well as working for a commissioning support unit um, and a CCG which is my current sort of position. I started in the NHS when I was 19 and I worked for a mental health trust as an admin assistant um, Mm -hmm. and stayed there probably for about uh, three years until I actually started with the same organisation as a a manager, an admin manager uh, with learning disabilities and social care. And then um, after I had my children, I then moved into the commissioning support unit. And that was very much looking at how we support our commissioners with contract management um, and managing and supporting them with provider management. Um, And that was really insightful, actually, from working for a provider organisation to not having a lot of um, awareness, really, how commissioners and NHS England fit in. Because you're working in a very sort of insular environment when you work with your um, NHS organisations. So it was really good eye-opener, really, to see how NHS England obviously um, work with our commissioners. Um, And then from that position, I worked with urgent and emergency care. So I worked with our 999-111 and out-of-hours GP providers. Um, And then was really fortunate to be able to move into a commissioning officer role, working working on the um, transformation of NHS 111. Um, and how we enhance services for people who access non-urgent 111 services. Um, I stayed in that job for about a year. Um, There was this opportunity for me to work um, as a commissioning manager um, for mental health across the STP, as what it was known as then, which is a a sustainability transformation partnership, looking at how we... Um, deliver services across a massive geography um, rather than um, across um, a certain sort of region Um, and that was actually really 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 insightful and I do have lived experience with regards to mental health so my husband um, has PTSD um, and I felt that the role that I was going into was not only going to make a difference to him through my experience but also make a difference to the population that I serve Um, so that was why I came into this role it wasn't I didn't have a career sort of path drawn out for me it was very much um, I was very 
very fortunate to be able to move into these roles um, and use my experience and my passion really for mental health. And so I've been in this role now for three years, um, primarily focusing on mental health crisis care across the all age um, criteria because we do very much think that mental health doesn't just stop at 18 and doesn't just stop when you um, get to your older uh, adult age. Um, So I'm very fortunate to be able to look at that all age um, spectrum really, which is which is really good um did you want me to go in to explain the role of ccgs yeah so just give a a brief definition of what the ccg does okay so the ccg stands for clinical commissioning groups um and actually over the last sort of three or four years um we've been working towards change um so our new uh, roles will be working as an integrated care system so you might have seen that the white paper that's recently been released yeah. talks about the integrated care system and new partnerships between organizations um but ccgs are there and they commission most of the hospital and community NHS services um, and that's with voluntary sector organisations, private organisations and obviously a huge number of NHS services Um, and commissioning involves us deciding on um, services for our diverse population um, and also ensuring that those services are committed to providing um, valuable um, and cost-based provision for our population but that deliver the outcomes that we as commissioners aspire for them to achieve Um, as well as working with experts by experience across all of our sectors to help us um, to transform and deliver the services in which we aspire to achieve so we don't just sit in a dark room um, deciding on services that we're going to deliver or commission it's very much about how we use the public voice and our experts by experience to ensure that we're delivering the right services for the people that we serve yeah no absolutely and what does your week usually comprise of sonia okay so i'll give you a bit of insight into my last week um, so last week, the, the role of Sonia was um, actually working for three days in the vaccination centre, which, to oh, be wow. honest, for me has been uh, absolutely lovely because I've spent the last 12 months at home juggling yeah. homeschooling and sort of my commissioning world in 24 hours, what it feels like of teams. Um, I um, ha- Last week, so I worked for those three days, but in between those days, I... Um, met with the police um so hampshire police and had conversations with british transport police around how we work together and continue to enhance the partnership approach that we have for mental health um and the people that they sort of come into contact with um we've got a secure transport provider here in hampshire in the isle of Wight, so we actually met with them um and i also um chair a mental health resilience group which is on every tuesday um and that is looking across all of our system all of our urgent emergency care sort of providers so our emergency departments our police service our 999 111 um and our mental health trust so we give a bit of a sit rep on our last week um and any challenges that may be coming up but also about how we could potentially offer mutual aid to each other if that's what's needed um 
and we did have a veterans meeting as well that week um which was looking at how we deliver mental health services to our veteran cohort um and how we ensure that their access to services is very timely um any other normal week there isn't really a normal week we don't have um sort of uh, weeks where we know exactly what's happening sometimes some days are worse than others with regards to maybe issues that are happening on the day um but it's very much about how we look to deliver um, a consistent and um, good uh, provision to all of the people that come into contact with our health services. Yeah, it, it certainly sounds a very involved, well-rounded job with a lot of variety, with a lot of um, dealings with a variety of companies. Um, I also noticed when I introduced you, it was a senior commissioning manager to mental health crisis care mm-hmm. would you be able to define what mental health crisis care is for the listeners absolutely and i think the first bit that i would say is that uh, somebody's mental health crisis is self-defined um yeah. so actually when we talk about what does crisis care look like mm-hmm. um for mental health Stephen, your mental health crisis might be very different to what my mental health crisis is. So it's really important that we, as um, people, um, define our own crisis. And there's there's no criteria or no sort of checklist around what that looks like, especially for me. I don't sort of work off of a checklist. It's very much about what it looks like for you. But for people who experience mental health crisis it's very much the feeling of um breaking point feeling like their mental health is in a situation of emergency um and that actually they may need um some immediate um health care support and i think the immediate health care support for me is really important because the difference between a mental health emergency and a physical health emergency are very different. Um, But actually a mental health emergency and a physical health emergency should be absolutely looked at in the same way. And we talk a lot about parity of esteem. Um, And actually for me, if my husband is experiencing a mental health crisis, um, actually it's a health response that he needs. very no similar no different to, to sort of anybody else and within Hampshire and the Isle of Wight we've um ensured that our population have a 24 7 sort of crisis mental health response um which is actually what all areas are doing regionally as part of the NHS long-term plan yeah. so a mental health crisis doesn't just happen between nine and five. It can happen at any point during the day. And in that time, we need to ensure that we provide an appropriate response to that person, their family and the carers around them, um, or even that child and young person. Um, and that's what we aspire to achieve across Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. So in a nutshell, it's uh, an emergency of your mental health. Um, however you as an individual define that emergency. Yeah, and now I understand why you said earlier that no one day is the same. Because I imagine that is very difficult and quite challenging to manage that because you, you could have something that comes in on one day that you're just completely not expecting 
and it's about being able to turn that around relatively quickly and manage that situation, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And within crisis care, that can be very, sometimes can be very complex. So you could be um, potentially involved in a situation that's really quite critical and, and needs a timely response. Now, we've got all of the services out there to support those timely responses. But ultimately, from a commissioning perspective as well, we look at the quality of the service that that individual's getting. We look at ensuring that the services that we've commissioned are delivering that timely response but also ensuring that that individual has all of the support around them as well um, and that can be from primary care so seeing your gp that could be from an ambulance arriving to that individual that could be from the police obtaining the right mental health response or it could be ensuring that when you do um enter into mental health services so whether that's the community mental health team or an inpatient setting um, or even for a crisis resolution and home treatment response that all of those services are delivering what we have as commissioners have commissioned them to deliver um, so it's ensuring that we're involved but also that we've got oversight into how those services are delivering um, high-quality care to the patient population that we serve in our region. Yeah. And how would you define the pros and cons of the job of being a CCG commissioner? I think there's ups and downs. Um, I'm hoping that there's more ups than there are downs. Um, And I've... So for me, for my role, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with some amazing experts from NHS England and amazing experts in people who've got lived experience with their mental health. Mm. And those are, for me, the pros of the job um, because you can learn a lot from those. Plus, you can also educate those who you thought were experts um, as well. The, The cons... The cons are when things don't sort of go quite well um, and then you have to sort of get involved um, as a commissioner and sort of have to try and help escalate situations or resolve situations. But that's, I don't always see that as a con. I see it as a pro because we're all still really learning. Um, And I think that if we ever said that anyone didn't do their job properly, that was quite a negative sort of comment that actually as a society, we're all still learning we as individuals are all really unique in the way that we come across. Um, so I am really passionate about my role and don't ever see sort of anything as negative. It's more about, okay, so that didn't go sort of quite well. So how are we going to ensure that doesn't happen um, next time for the yeah. next person? And how can we continue to learn from things that don't always go to plan um, so we can ensure that it goes to plan next time? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the next point I want to come on to is what pressures do commissioners face that people don't realise? Um, so I think COVID um, has taught us all um, to love our NHS. Yeah. Um, and to be completely frank, I joined the NHS a number of years ago because I did love to work with people to work with the NHS and to really help sort of our 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 patients and our people um and 
I think the pressures that I that people don't see is the the pressures of when things don't go quite so well and how we have to very quickly turn around any action plans or um, any things that we have to do as commissioners to mitigate those things happening. Um, again, um, finances are a, a big pressure to the NHS and the CCGs um, because when we think that we've not got enough money, um, we've always got to find more money and sometimes those are really hard decisions that we have to make around funding and if we can't fund something how can we find the money to invest so a lot of our work is around business cases for development um because we need to the the nhs hasn't got sort of like a bottomless pit with regards to money and we have to also balance our bank statements just as much as the public do um but ultimately we don't want to strip back any services um so it's very much about how do we work on transformation and how do we deliver services at scale because sometimes that delivering services at scale mean that we can deliver services that are more reasonably priced um but also deliver the same outcomes for our patients and our patient outcomes and the quality of our services are really really important another one of those um pressures that ccg have are very much around assurance for nhs england and improvement so how we assure nhs e and i that we are delivering and that we are investing the money in which they have asked us to invest in our services um and again that is a pressure that not everybody is able to see um but we do that very much behind the scenes um and i'm hoping that nhs england then are able to then go back to um, our members of parliament and obviously confirm those levels of investment that they've agreed to put in to the nhs are being well spent on our patients um because the the public money is really important so we do have to justify where the taxpayers money are going yeah and touching on covid obviously it's affected everyone in the country everyone around the world how has covid affected your role and your job sonia um so when obviously covid first came around um in what is it the 20th of march last year <laughs> yeah. um us personally as ccgs we weren't able to work in our offices um so we immediately started working from home which yeah. was I suppose good that we had the ability to be able to do that but actually some of my colleagues were then working out of dining rooms or bedrooms um, uh, or having their laptops and stuff on their desks so we didn't always have the right environment to be able to work from home um, so our CCGs then did have to think about how we can still ensure that our workforce are kept safe um, we have worked at home really really well and actually we've continued to be able to function as a team um really well and still have that team rapport um the laughing and the joking which is really good even though we're not seeing each other physically yeah. um covid has affected our work demand um because ultimately we have had to um 
have additional levels of assurance. Um, we've had to scale up some meetings. Um, so some of our um, health and social care cells are meeting two, three times a week, um, where we never had sort of those levels of meetings before. And that's actually as a group of commissioners, how we ensure that we are having a conversation, that we're talking about system resilience, we're talking about mutual aid support, um, and we have had the military in to support us with regards to COVID um, across a variation of services, because ultimately we've also had to ensure that where our staff have gone off with COVID-related illnesses, that the NHS still ticks over, because actually the amount of demand that's come in in our region has outstripped our sort of workforce um, and our capacity. So we've all had to change our work styles um as well as managing our children at home as well because we've all had to sort of juggle those priorities as well um and i think we've been so for me i've we've been well supported within our ccg um and i think that support enables you to continue to work at the level um that we've all worked on as well as taking on some of those additional roles as well some of our teams have take some of our team members have taken on uh, an extra job role um, and oh, wow. obviously just squeezing that in seven days a week as well um, which is sort of added pressure to them yeah. um, but we've we, we've all survived and we've all ensured that we've sort of taken leave because we've needed that sort of work-life balance as well for our own mental health it's been really important that we look after our mental health in this as well because ultimately our our population needs us to continue to to improve on those services that we've commissioned um, as well as making sure that we're commissioning new services as well. Absolutely and touching on the stigma around mental health do you think that the stigma has reduced since you've been involved in um, mental health and how do you think we could continue to reduce the stigma of mental health? I think the stigma around mental health is improving um, and we can only get that better by people being able to talk about how they feel. Um, And I think I'll always sort of use the analogy that if you break a leg, you're quite happy to show your work colleagues and your neighbours and your friends that you've broken a leg because you get a little bit of attention as well. Um, But actually, the stigma and discrimination that comes with mental health for some is quite significant. um, And actually, it could cut off some of their friends or then social sort of networks. And a lot of that is because people don't know how to... um, to maybe talk or don't know what to sort of advice to sort of give but actually just being kind and just listening sometimes is all that someone needs um and you don't have to offer advice you don't have to offer feedback but someone just knowing that you're there um is is sort of really helpful and i think the work that has been done over the last sort of five years around mental health will absolutely help to reduce that stigma but the more and more we encourage others to understand mental health more um it's also going to help as well and to be completely frank Stephen, i'm learning about mental health symptoms 
every single day and I've been doing this job for now a number of years so you'll never ever stop learning um but I don't think people need to really know a huge amount just to be there for someone and just to listen and to be able to pick up that phone and just to say to somebody are you okay and that time to talk and don't just say oh no no no, sorry I've got to be I'm busy I'm doing this just really listen because actually you might be the only person they've spoken to today um or actually you might be the last person that they are going to speak to because they've been thinking about other things um and it's really important that we all sort of listen um, and actually we're not negative towards mental health. It's a positive thing. We've all got mental health. Yeah. We've all got physical health um, and we should embrace it um, exactly the same way as we embrace physical health. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've mentioned is one of the positives and there's not many positives from COVID, but one of the positives, in my opinion, is that people have been more open in discussing about their anxiety and depression because a lot more people are suffering with it with the furlough scheme is it going to be extended isn't it are they going to have a job to go back to the universal credit is are they going to keep the extra 20 pound in place so there's there's a lot more anxiety and depression and what i've also been mentioning on these podcasts is raising awareness in young children so essentially having an age-appropriate module for young children or even mental health first aid Mm -hmm. in order for when they get to well hopefully before my age with me being 30 hopefully when they're about Mm -hmm. 18 19 20 they will start to understand it more and the next generation coming through would be more understanding of what mental health is and how to know the signs that you're having poor mental health and know the signs in how to talk to someone because language is so powerful and obviously as lawyers we use language every day to persuade a judge and a jury to see in our favour and I think that there should be some kind of core simulation to the do's and don'ts of talking to someone with a mental health problem so for instance if someone's got depression the last thing you say to them is oh snap out of it because that is the last thing because they'll just go into an even bigger hole because they feel that they're not being understood so i think there are areas that can be improved in but that there has been some improvement and I think there's been a lot of improvement recently with obviously the the TV campaigns with Mind and Young Minds to talk but I think if you start the education early enough you would prevent it being a bigger problem in years to come absolutely and I I'm I'm a I've got twin boys and they're 13 and we sit down every day for dinner at a table and we are exceptionally fortunate that we've got the ability to sit down at a table and talk about how our day's been and I think because I do the job I do Lee works for the police um service so we're really mindful of that 
um, of having that conversation. Actually, when they were to say something that we feel is quite derogatory, actually, we can say to them, well, why why would you say that? And why would you think that? Um, but some parents, carers, uh, guardians don't have the ability to always have those sort of conversations. We're all juggling work-life balance and yeah. all the needs of other children that are in the household or families and, and the people that you're caring for. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about um, the communication element, because actually for Lee, my husband, if he's not actually feeling great in his mental health, he might go to work quite quiet. Yeah. And a number of his, his colleagues have recently sort of made a reaction that he's grumpy, um, but actually not. He's not grumpy. He's just dealing with his mental health emotions, um, yeah. and it might take him a little bit longer that day to sort of get his mind straight, but he's still able to do 100% of his work um, and commit and be there, but actually he just needs a little bit longer to sort of get away these dark demons that his head is feeling that day or just come to terms with some thought processes that he's got and communication is really key yeah. because if we don't tell people how we're feeling then they're not going to know and actually you they could say something that could actually make a massive impact yeah. on your mental health that day and I, I remember somebody saying to me um in my very early years um that they wanted some time to talk to me um, because they weren't feeling great. And I said, oh, no, sorry, I'm really busy. Um, I need to go off to a meeting. Um, and that member of staff then went off sick for about six weeks with um, anxiety. Um, wow. And actually, had I just gone, do you know what, you're more important at that meeting if I just spend five minutes with you, I could have prevented her potentially going off from work yeah. or I could have actually got her the support that she needed um and then she knew that she would be able to trust me and talk to me and it's only through years of learning that I've gone actually if I'm gonna say to somebody are you okay I need the time to react if they say actually do you know what I could really do with a chat now or a cup of tea and I'm a, I've yeah. got the ability to then go and do that. So communication for me is just really, really important. And that will help to alleviate the stigma around mental health, I think. And mental health first aid is an amazing course. I've done it. And it okay. does teach you a lot. But I think a lot of the barriers around mental health first aid is, is it's not free. And it's not free mm. everywhere. Um, so... I think if people have got the opportunity to do that course, absolutely do it because it's it's really good at teaching you the foundations. Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, I didn't even know that there was first aid around mental health until I connected yeah. with someone on LinkedIn who did mental health first aid. And then when you look into it, you think, I mean, that's just brilliant. I mean... I'm talking to a mental health first aider in New Zealand soon. Mm. And some of the things that they do, like I was given one example whereby with someone suffering with paranoid schizophrenia, they whisper in your ear for a long period of oh, time so yes. you realise what it's like. And you yeah. can only imagine that you're constantly fighting 
that voice which is constantly in your ear when you're trying to concentrate and do what you do in whatever job mm. i mean that must be so debilitating we we did that very much um on our course um and it was so hard yeah. for me to concentrate on what i the conversation that i was trying to have with the person in front of me when i had a colleague whispering stuff in my ear and to live with that oh my god yeah those people are just amazing to be able to really concentrate on their daily lives as well as what the what's going on in their head um and they should be they should it, that's remarkable that they're able to yeah. continue to function and continue to have a good quality of life whilst trying to deal with that. I found it really difficult and actually did have to ask for them to stop um, because I, well, I couldn't do it. I mean, this is probably going slightly off a tangent, but I saw a film recently with Russell Crowe and he should really be paying me for plugging his film. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the film is called A Beautiful Mind. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. So, um, but I obviously need to if you're talking about it. So this um, film is about a maths professor genius. Mm-hmm. And he's suffering with paranoid schizophrenia. And the film takes you through... Initially, you think that the person he's talking to is real. He's got a real flatmate. And he's really working for the FBI. And then midway through the film, it flips because he's admitted to a psychiatric hospital in America. And these are actually voices in his head. So he never had a flatmate. No one ever saw this flatmate. It was just the main character in the film. He wasn't working for the FBI. This was all going on inside his head. He went into a psychiatric hospital, had 10 sessions of ECT and was given medication. He then stopped his medication and the voices came back. But then he made the decision to not go back into hospital, not have medication and learn coping strategies to cope with the voices. That he he would live with them, but he would have to manage to cope with them. And this is based on a true story. And this maths professor won the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. Now... In my opinion, there should be more films tackling mental health like that than the stereotypical One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and all the others because that just gives such a positive light that even though you have a mental health problem and quite a very serious one in paranoid schizophrenia, you can still be very intelligent very successful and make a good go at life absolutely and i think what that also proves is that there is treatment with no medication um and and sometimes people believe that if they some some people have used the word committed so if they've been 
um, detained under the Mental Health Act, then there's no sort of going back, then that, that's it for them. Their yeah. life is sort of over. But it's absolutely not um, in any way, shape or form. Actually, if anything, your your journey has just sort of begun to recovery. Um, but it's very much that you have to put in just as much as you want to get out. Um, and everybody's mental health is so, so, so different. And I can never, never sort of... Um, begin to sort of imagine um, what it's like. I can only see what it's like because of Lee and obviously the experiences that Lee and I have had with Lee sort of wanting to take his life and how we've sort of come through that journey. Um, But I will definitely watch that because I think um, it enables you to sort of talk about other people's um, sort of experiences and actually seeing it in a a movie does give people hope. Um, And I... I'll give you another one. So there was a movie at Christmas that I watched called Last Christmas. And it was about a young girl who had a heart transplant. And she was in a bit of a sort of muddle with her life, really. And her her mum was very much like, you need to to look after this heart and you need to make sure that you sort of live life to the full. Um, And actually, she was seeing... um, She met this man um, and... um, what she didn't realise is this man was in her head and this man wow. was the chap who'd give her her heart, give him his heart, give his heart to her. Um, and as a consequence to the interactions that they had, she changed her life around um, and she started helping out in a homeless hostel um, and uh, had a Christmas Christmassy job. Um, and she just turned her life around as a consequence. And sometimes there are wow. supernatural sort of things that happen in your life that make you realise or make you see life differently um and i do love a good movie and i do love a movie that really makes you think actually i could do something different here and i could think about things differently um but just going back to sort of everybody's life and everyone's experiences are different and everyone's challenges are different and talking about sort of poverty and what covid has done to some people and the challenges that they've got in life we have to all stick together um and we will all get through it, um, but we have to take baby steps and one day at a time um, and set mini goals for ourselves because it's the only way that we can see that we have made a difference. Absolutely. And I think both of our checks are in the post from those two actors. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, <laughs> moving back to the role of a commissioner... What support or help or finance is required in order for you as commissioners to be in an even better position to do your job to the best standard possible for patients? Wow, that's just a really, really (laughs) good question. And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to answer that with all of my ability. So what support... The support that we need to do our job is to be given the autonomy um, and also the support from our population, um, our experts by experience, whether that's commissioning um, 
NHS hospital sort of services, whether that's even looking at how we're potentially building a new hospital in our region, because we want to listen to our experts who use our services to ensure that we are commissioning the right services. And that goes with their help as well, because we've got a lot of volunteers who are happy to sort of work with us to guide us um, in the right way. And a lot of family members as well who've had really poor experiences um, and really want to help us to ensure that other family members don't have those poor experiences. Finances, well, that's a good question because I think financially, yes, we'd like loads and loads of money, but actually the finances allow us to think about how we commission services that are cost-effective and deliver the right outcomes for our patients and not always privatising services to get the right outcomes for our patients and we'll all be feeling at the moment that all the money is being invested into covid and ensuring that our um, all of our services including our schools and every other service out there that's been affected is getting the right funding and that's really important to ensure that our society is able to continue to function at the pre-covid sort of stage um and the the nhs um, has been really sort of well supported with regards to funding for COVID. And we do have to ensure that some of those levels of investment remain the same. Um, because as we look into long COVID and the effects that COVID has had on people, oh. that ultimately is going to affect how some of our NHS provisions um, are delivered and the fact that we may need new staff obviously we've got this massive vaccination program that needs staff needs people to be able to support it and who knows how long that program for vaccinations is going to go on for Um, so the help and support is about listening to our population making sure that we're delivering our services and listening to the voice of the people that use those services making sure that we are buying the services that we need, but that they are financially viable and they do deliver quality outcomes for our patients because that's that's why we do our job, because we want to ensure that we're aspiring to achieve that sort of gold standard service. Um, I'm hoping that I've answered that question in a in a way in which that my colleagues probably listening to this podcast are going to go, oh, that was a really good response, or actually you missed loads out. That sounded a very good response to me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and finally, I always like to end on a light-hearted question. So the question is, what would your dream job be and why? And believe you and me, I have had some bizarre answers yeah i've had um one was a professional mermaid oh wow yeah that's that's exactly my reaction that was so what would my dream job be ultimately the dream job needs to ensure that i can still lead a relatively comfortable life um as in that my children can get still get the things that they want to sort of get and I would like to look I think my dream job would be that I'm not working full-time so I can still look after my mental well-being and have additional time to do that four days a week I could probably do that on I think um and I do enjoy working for the NHS um so for our sort of health services um 
if I had a magic wand, what would I do right now? And I think I would still work in the job that I've got now. Um, I don't want to be a mermaid. Um, I would like to be comfortable financially, which is what I think everybody probably wants to be able to do. Um, But along with comfortable finances comes probably their own sort of problems as well. I think everyone wants to sort of win the lottery, um, but actually what hassle comes along with that as well. Um, Spending being able to spend time with my family um, and also work. Um, and I think really cornerly, I'll say that I've got my dream job because I'm a mum and I'm a wife um, and I love doing that as well. Um, so it's probably not a mermaid, but <laughs> it's sort of what my dreams would be. Yeah, no, I mean, that sounds good because it's just enjoying the simple things in life and the basics in life, which I think really COVID has taught us to do more than ever. It And, and actually, it absolutely has. It's taught us that those friends and family are really important. Some of my yeah. fam- my friends I haven't been able to sort of see for over a year, um, which is hard. Um, but actually, when we do see each other physically um, those times are even more sort of precious um, and our families are the ones that we can and our friends the ones we can rely on so for me it is it is the small things unfortunately well a follow-up question to that is um, from the 21st of June when theoretically in inverted commas we're going to be back to normal yeah what would be the first thing that you would want to do what would be hug as many people as I can and probably some really random people in the street Um, we have got a number of um, camping trips booked um, this year we're very fortunate to have a camper van um, and we have got some trips booked Um, I am 40 in June and we've got the camper jam festival booked Um, so for me to be able to go with my family um and um, my close friends and just be able to have a bit of fun, let your hair down, not have to worry about work um, and spend quality time together um, for me is really good, as well as celebrating the big 4-0 that I don't think should count really because <laughs> last year we couldn't really count and this year it really doesn't count. So I think we should just be able to wipe two years <laughs> <laughs> Well, I celebrated my 30th in lockdown. Well done. So, you know, I mean, you, you just have to make the best out of a bad situation. Um, <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've certainly come away a lot more insightful into the role of a commissioner, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have done the same. So, I can only, well, I can't thank you enough. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Sonia. No, my pleasure, and it's my pleasure for everybody else listening as well. Hopefully it's been a little bit insightful into uh, the roles and complexities that we've got. And that concludes today's episode with Sonia. Please feel free to leave a review if you enjoyed this episode and also like the Legal Wolf Instagram and LinkedIn pages in order to stay right up to date with the very latest content being released in regards to the podcast the blog and also the live Q&A sessions. Thank you.